We left off a few weeks ago at verse 11. We saw how Ananias and Sapphira were slain, not in the Spirit, but by the Spirit. They didn't get up again. It really wasn't a blessing to them. They just kicked the bucket. And it was God's discipline upon them for their hypocrisy. Now, we're going to read tonight verses 12 through 21. And the rest of the chapter could be summed up by a title. You could call this Truth and Consequences. Because the early church here speaks the truth. And because they speak the truth, there are consequences for it. You know, we so often speak about the good news. That's what the word gospel means. To preach the gospel means that you proclaim good news. A Christian is one who tells people good news, not bad news. You turn on late night news and you get bad news, usually. Except at the very end, they have one segment for 30 seconds as kind of a funny on the light side, but usually it's bad news. In contrast to that, the Christian tells people not the sin of the world, but how to be saved from sin. But what is good news to some is to others bad news. The same gospel message, while it attracts certain people and excites certain people, for instance, when you hear the Word of God, you get excited about it because you're Christians. You know the Lord. You're excited about your relationship with the Lord. But if you share the same gospel message with an unbeliever, they always don't get excited about it. They get convicted. Sometimes they get angry and they throw a fit. Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians says, We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death. And to the other, the aroma of life to life. When I first became a Christian, I sort of expected everyone to rejoice in the decision I had made. And I was mistaken. I went home, first of all, to my parents. It was the natural thing to do. I says, Mom, I'm saved. And she looked at me and said, From what? I said, I'm a Christian. She said, You've always been a Christian. And as she saw my life, she wasn't as excited about the decision I made as I was. To her, it was bad news because she sort of lost control. She lost the grip that she wanted to have. I went back to my old friends and I shared with them about Jesus. The people that I had partied with, the people I went to school with, all of my old comrades. They weren't excited. It was bad news to them. I went and shared to my high school in a kind of an assembly, in a group at lunchtime. They weren't excited. I even went back to my old church and shared the gospel with them, and they weren't excited. And I thought, now, wait a minute, something's wrong here. It says preach the good news. These people don't think it's that good. For to one group it will be good news, to another group it will be bad news. Now remember that old axiom in school that you've heard and we've even shared that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. The action of following Jesus and making a stand for Him produces an equal and opposite reaction. Some will get excited as you are. Others will be very angry and upset because they don't think the way you think. They haven't made the decision you've made. They're not at the place where you're at. Now, if they ever come to know the Lord, they also will rejoice. And all of a sudden they go, now I can see. I was blind, but now I can see. And so there's good news and there's bad news. In this chapter, we have seen the momentum building. The early church is growing. Jerusalem is hearing the gospel. No one in that city could deny that something unique is happening. And for most of the religious people, they could not deny that something supernatural was happening. That God was working a new work in the midst of His ancient people. And it is estimated that some 20,000 believers existed by chapter 5. 
while there was excitement generated because of the good news, it produced an equal and opposite reaction. There were those who did not share the excitement. They weren't as happy with the success that was going on, and that's the religious establishment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, those very rulers that opposed Jesus' ministry, the very people that strung him up on a cross and put nails in him, are the same enemies of the church who are now saying the same Jesus you put on a cross is risen from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And persecution arises in the church. Jesus promised that, by the way. He said, listen, if they persecuted me, you're not going to get off the hook. They're going to persecute you. To his disciples, he said in John 16, they will put you out of the synagogues and the time is coming that, listen, whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Well, we see that very thing fulfilled in these chapters. We've seen persecution. We see it again tonight. It's the second persecution of the early church. And you're going to see many more as the book of Acts go on. Now, we've said before, persecution never hurt the church. It always strengthened the church. It separates the men from the boys, the half-hearted believers from the full-fledged believers. As you're going to see tonight, not many people dared join themselves to the church after seeing what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Those who were half-hearted, those who were not following completely thought, you know what, I'm going to think twice about becoming a Christian because I saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and I'd like to live a little bit longer. Thank you. And so there was this holy fear and reverence that pervaded the church. It wasn't a flippant thing to just, yeah, okay, I'll become a Christian. Oh, I don't have anything else to do other than that. There was a real seriousness that occurred in the church. And a lot of this came because of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira and also persecution. There's a conflict going on. It's the age-old conflict between living truth and dead tradition. And never the twain will meet without conflict. Some of you have had that experience and you've told me about it. You have come to a living reality of the truth. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. And a lot of you have gone back to your religious family and friends and you've tried to share it with them. And many of them, dead in their tradition, have conflict with you alive in the truth. And we see that conflict surfacing here. You know, Jesus said something that is analogous to this. He said, you cannot take new wine and pour it into old wineskins. Because those old wineskins will burst and the new wine will be spilled out and wasted. You can't take a piece of new cloth that has been unshrunk and sew it onto an old garment. Because the old garment has already shrunk. The new cloth hasn't. If you sew the new onto the old, the new will shrink the next time you wash it and it will make the tear worse. And of course, this was an analogy to old religious systems, which are wineskins which are meant to contain the wine of the truth. And if you try to pour the new wine into an old wineskin, this structured, dead, traditional Judaism, it would just break. And so God went outside the Jewish framework when they rejected it, and He preached the gospel to the Gentiles. A new wineskin had the wine poured into it. I bought a book this last week when I was on my journeys. I was flying from Albuquerque to Dallas to North Carolina. And in Dallas airport, I saw the book, the new Megatrends book by John Nesbitt. Megatrends 2000. So I flipped through the contents to see if I should buy it. And it had a whole section on spirituality and the trends that he sees occurring in this decade, right before the year 2000 that ushers in the third millennium. And the trends in religion and spirituality said, i got to have this book. I bought the book, and he says that at the dawn of the third millennium, we will see religious revival. Not meaning necessarily Christian revival, although that's part of it, but New Age, Buddhism, an awareness of spirituality. And he said something interesting. The mainline churches 
are declining like crazy. And that mainline churches usually decline at times of change, which we are undergoing. When the nation is at a nice keel and an even pace, the mainline churches grow. When there's times of change, cataclysm, those things are declining. And today we're seeing a massive decline in mainline churches. However, the slogan, he says, of the modern baby boom generation is spirituality, yes, organized religion, no. He said there's an increase of awareness in the fact that God exists even in the divinity of Jesus Christ. And that many people are turning to Christianity, but not within the mainline framework. People are begging for an experience with God, but they find that a lot of those old mainline wineskins are a little bit hard and brittle. And often God will pour His wine out in a new way. Now that's a warning for us too. We can become a dead hard wineskin like anybody. Not keeping in pace with the things of the Spirit and the movement of God in our generation. Well, we said that there was about 20,000 people right now in the early church in this chapter. And it seems odd, but that's really not many people in comparison to the entire nation of Israel. Yet this 20,000 were able to make a stand against government and against Jewish religion and make a stand for the gospel and not take it sitting down, not just sit in the background. When they were persecuted, they rose again and they were stronger. And every time they were put down, they got up again and the gospel was preached in even a bold way. If you were to sum up this section, I would sum it up by the one word, great. I've traced that word in chapter 4 through the next several chapters and I find it appearing many times in this way. There's great power it speaks about, great grace, great fear, and great persecution. And you know they all seem to go together. In times of great persecution, there's often great fear, meaning great reverence for God. The chaff, the lightweight Christians sort of fall away. Those who have a healthy, awesome reverence for God remain. Let's first of all look at the action, the impact of the Christian com community. It says in verse 12 that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, or the colonnade of Solomon in the temple. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And so that they brought the sick out into the streets, laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This group of people made an impact on their own community, the community of Jerusalem. The first thing we notice, it says there were signs and wonders that were being done. It's important that we realize that this was a direct answer to prayer. If you look back at chapter 4, Verse 29, look at their prayer. Let's refresh our memory. They say, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So it was a direct answer to prayer. It was also the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus said, Greater works than these that I've done shall you do. And so we see the fulfillment of that promise and the answer to their prayer. I have read many accounts and philosophies concerning miracles, signs, and wonders in the modern church. Now, I've heard that these kind of miraculous signs were confined to the apostolic days, the days of the book of Acts and a few years following. And that after that, the miracles ceased because the book of Acts was a transition period. Here's their thinking. In every transitional period of spiritual history, God confirms His Word through signs and wonders. Now, that's true. 
For instance, when the law was given to Moses for the children of Israel, it was confirmed with great signs and wonders unparalleled in their history. When it was time for the prophets and the prophetic stage to be set, Elijah and Elisha both had miraculous powers coming out their ears. And every period of great transition, now the church, when Jesus comes in the early church, there's great miraculous powers that occur. And so, yes, signs and wonders were given to the church to authenticate the message. But that doesn't mean that they were to cease. Now, we've covered this in depth in our series on the Holy Spirit. The Bible makes it clear that signs were to continue throughout biblical history, even up to the present time. Even though people say they don't exist, we heard tonight they do exist. A brother came forward for healing. God healed him. It's sort of like the bumblebee. You know, I found out that scientifically a bumblebee is not supposed to fly. But bumblebees don't know this. And they do it anyway. And many people say, well, now those things don't happen anymore. Well, there's a lot of us, thank God, who don't know that. And we just trust God for it and pray to the Lord for it. And God will say, sure. And sort of blow the theology of many people. You know, whenever there has been revival throughout history, great periods of revival, we have seen the resurfacing of the miraculous, of signs and wonders, where God confirms His Word through signs and wonders. If you read some of the historical accounts of St. Francis of Assisi, if you read some of the historical accounts of the great Methodist revivals, now a lot of Methodists would not like to admit to this, but there was much of the what they would call charismatic revival and gifts at those times. The revivals of R.A. Torrey, Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even though Moody Bible Institute doesn't like to talk about it very much. Charles Finney in upstate New York and New England saw miraculous things occur. Read his autobiography. Every period of church history that brings revival, we see a surfacing of this, so it's not strange that we would not only read about it here, but at periods in modern history. You know, whenever Jesus performed a miracle, there were at least four purposes for the performing of that miracle. First of all, it's because Jesus had compassion for people. The second reason is because the human need was there and Jesus performed a miracle to meet the need. Thirdly, Jesus performed miracles to authenticate His Messiahship. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He performed miracles and many believed in Him. And a fourth reason was to convey a spiritual truth. For example, Jesus fed the 5,000. He looked at the crowd. He had compassion on them. They were like sheep having no shepherd. In feeding them, He met their physical human need. It authenticated the fact that He was the Son of God. Many turned to Him and believed in Him. And also, it formed the stage for Jesus to preach a message on Himself as the bread of life in John chapter 6 to convey a spiritual truth. That's the pattern of the miraculous, of signs and wonders through the Scripture. Now, that is the pattern that the apostles used in the book of Acts. Another example, the man who was healed in Acts chapter 3 who sat at the gate beautiful and begged. Peter and John had compassion on the man. In saying, get up and walk, the miracle met the human need. It also pointed to the fact that Jesus was alive from the dead and authenticated the gospel. And as soon as it was all over, there was a crowd of people and Peter took advantage of it as a platform to preach the gospel. After the miracle was all over, he didn't say, pretty good, huh? You can all go home now. He said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. You never saw miracles apart from the preaching of the Word. They formed a basis to preach the gospel. Now Jesus promised that wherever believers go in His name, that signs and wonders would follow them. However, there is a tendency 
for certain believers to follow signs and wonders. And they sort of go on uh, a little kind of a, like an egg hunt, looking under every bush to find the colored egg, following signs and wonders rather than preaching the gospel and allowing signs and wonders to follow them. A few years ago, I was in India and I was allowed to go on a newly constructed boat for the purpose of taking missionaries to the islands off the southern tip of India, a place that was totally unreached. It was the first time I ever had the opportunity to look somebody in the eye who didn't know who Jesus was, never heard of a Christian, never heard the name Jesus in his life. And it was such an incredible experience. We were on an island. I was with some of the locals. We were passing out tracts. They were interpreting. And I think they were just letting me tag along. Not that I had any great knowledge. They had it down a lot better than I had. But they kind of let me follow them along. And they said, look, you do all the talking and we'll interpret for you. And I said, no, no, you do it all. I'll just watch you. They said, no, go for it. I said, all right. So we went from door to door, passed out tracts, and they took us to a hospital on one of these islands. Now, a hospital in India, if you've ever been there, it's not a hospital like you think. Your garage is probably seriously in much better shape than the hospitals in India. Cement floors, holes in the wall that are square, no glass, no screen, flies going. It's basically a place for people to die, not to get healed. A steel mattress. If you're lucky, you have a little bit of a cushion on it and a sheet. And I walked into this place, took a big swallow, and they took me over to this one lady. She'd never heard the gospel, and she was dying of a lung disease. And they said, hey, why don't, we, why don't you pray for her? And so I said, all right. And I explained to her who I was, what I was doing, that I was going to pray that Jesus would heal her. And I shared the gospel with her. I laid hands on her. I prayed for her. We went on to the next person, left the hospital, was home in a couple weeks. About a month later, I received a letter from a dear friend of mine who was my interpreter there. And he said, the lady you prayed for in the hospital was healed. She was dying and she was healed. Jesus healed her and she took the tract that was by her bed that you gave her and wrote on the wrote for the information, the address on the back, to get more information. And she was so ecstatic, she wrote immediately, got the information, she prayed and received Jesus Christ. And she's a Christian today on that island. And a church has grown. But you see, the miracle was a stage for the preaching of the gospel. It wasn't the end in itself. Yes, there was compassion. He wanted to meet the human need. But it was always a formatting platform to preach the gospel, to convey a spiritual truth. Jesus said, when they said, show us a sign, He said, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after signs. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. You know, the most important thing is the message, not the miracle. Now listen carefully. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, God said, if someone comes along who is a prophet, who performs a miracle, find out his message and see if he's leading people away from God. Even if he performs a miracle, if his doctrine isn't sound, take him out and stone him. You see, the most important thing was the message. Because the New Testament says even Satan can counterfeit certain signs and certain wonders. And so the message was always the most important thing. It should never lead away from the Word. And what is the greatest miracle, folks? Isn't the greatest miracle the transformation of a soul? When somebody gives their life to Jesus Christ, you know, sometimes we minimize that. We maximize physical healing and we minimize spiritual healing. But a spiritual healing is the greatest miracle of all. Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? And to make things very clear, Jesus said something that most people are astonished by. He said, if your right eye offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. In other words, if you had your druthers to walk into hell with two arms and two legs and good eyesight, or you had your choice to go to heaven without any arms and any legs, you should go to heaven. You see, spiritual 
miracle of a new birth is the kind of healing that lasts forever. If a person gets healed, that's wonderful. We should pray for it. But that's very temporary because that person's going to die. It's appointed unto man wants to die. It won't last for thousands of years. Spiritual transformation will last for all of eternity. It guarantees salvation. That's why it's the greatest miracle. It lasts the longest. It meets the greatest need. And by the way, it costs the greatest price. The reason Jesus died on the cross is to save people from sin. Therefore, the greatest miracle is when a person is delivered from sin. And you know what? It never gets old to see a person except Jesus Christ. And woe to the person who sees that his old hat. We should rejoice when a person raises his or her hand or walks forward at an altar call or we hear about somebody praying to receive Christ. It should just cause us to rejoice. All the angels in heaven do, you know. Jesus said when one sinner repents, all the angels in heaven party down. That's a free translation. (laughs) They rejoice. It never gets old. And you know, it never gets old whether I personally see a large group come forward or one person. This last week I was in California for three, four meetings. And we saw a great harvest. We saw people come up the whole front was filled and people had to walk up on all the steps of the stage just to, to get everybody in. But you know what? That's wonderful. But it's just as wonderful when one person comes to know Jesus. A week, a couple of days before that, I was in North Carolina. And I love it when the Lord allows this to happen. I was going to my hotel room at this hotel in North Carolina for a board meeting that we were having. And um, a bell boy was walking up, uh, taking my bags up. And... Um, he looked at Franklin Graham and he looked a little bit familiar and he saw this religious stuff and he said, now who is that guy? I said, that's Franklin Graham and that's Billy Graham's son. I go, really? What is this organization about? And he asked a lot of questions. And I just asked him, are you a Christian? He said, well, and he was a member of a church. He grew up in a church, but he admitted, I am not a Christian. I sort of believe in God, but I have my own little life. I want my own little life. I don't want anybody to bother it. And so I got to share with him for about 15, 20 minutes He was in my hotel room and he prayed and he gave his life to Jesus right there in the hotel room. And then Franklin Graham calls me on the phone because he's waiting for his bags in his room and the guy has his bags. And Franklin says, where's my bags? I said, Franklin, the bellboy just accepted the Lord. So when he comes to your room, you ought to have a few words with him. And Franklin said when the bell guy came to his room and he opened the door... Franklin said, he looked like a Christian. He was smiling. He had joy all over his face. And Franklin said, I heard you just received Christ. And the young man said, that's right. I just received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I know that I couldn't live my life without him. It never gets old. The transformation that takes place is something that we should maximize. We should rejoice in. And you know what? Signs and wonders will follow when you preach the gospel. But don't follow signs and wonders and think, well, you know, I want a bigger volcano than one I've seen. I want more explosion, more lava. If you preach the gospel and if you're doing the Lord's work, you will see signs and wonders follow you. Now look in verse 13. We see not only were there signs and wonders, but as we said, a healthy reluctance to join the church. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. During the 19, late 60s and 70s, there was something that many of you were involved in or heard of (laughs) called the Jesus Movement. It was really a revival of sorts. Uh, Wonderful things happened. Thousands upon thousands of young people came to know Jesus. It got to be a fad, however. A whole group of friends became Christians, so a few more became Christians just because it was the in thing to do. And today, many of them have fallen away from the Lord, which is what Jesus predicted. He said, the sower sows his seed, and some of the seed falls on stony ground. And it doesn't have much earth, so the roots don't go down. And so when tribulation or persecution comes, hard times because of the word, those people fall away. They flake away. And then there's those who hear the word, but they are like the seed that was sown among thorns and the cares of this world choke the seed and it becomes unfruitful. And so after Ananias and Sapphira incident, people were a little bit more reluctant. Look at verse 14 just for just a moment. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes, both men and women. 
So there were signs and wonders, a healthy fear. Many people were getting saved. And just to reiterate something we shared with you in the early part of the book of Acts, church growth is normal. It's normal. I have received all sorts of information on church growth. Seminars, you know, if you went to every church growth seminar, you'd never be home with your church. They're everywhere. And all of them have little secrets to make your church grow. In the New Testament, when they devoted themselves to four priorities, the church grow. Apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship and prayer. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Nobody had to attend seminars to find out how to do it because God did it for them. And it was easy because it was his church. He was building his church and man didn't have to get involved. And the day that man got involved and said, Holy Spirit, thank you for what you did in the book of Acts. But we have our own techniques and seminars now. Thank you. That's when we really needed them because the Lord wasn't adding anymore. But we see many here coming to know the Lord. A couple things about that. Luke is the only one that mentions women coming to know the Lord. Now, I share that with you because the way they counted in those days was often very male chauvinistic. At least it would be counted that way today. For instance, when Jesus fed the 5,000, there were more than 5,000, but they counted men only. Luke, in his gospel and in the book of Acts, several times makes reference to women. And here for the first time, it's specifically shared that men and women came to know the Lord. The culture was very male-dominated. Women, folks, played a very significant role in the New Testament. It's often overlooked, especially by those who bring out certain key passages that Paul shared. And they think, you know, women aren't given a very good position in the church. Well, I'm sorry, but they really are. Women played an important role way back in the Old Testament. Deborah was a judge of Israel. Men and women flocked from all over to hear her wisdom. She was a leader of the people. In the New Testament, many women ministered with Jesus. They were part of his ministry team. And their names are even given. In the New Testament, we hear about Phoebe. We hear about the prophetess, the deaconess. Not just deacon, but deaconess. Phoebe was a deaconess. There were Girls who prophesied. They were called prophetesses. And we often kind of shortchange the girls, but the Scripture's plenty. It's full of it. In Galatians chapter 3, listen. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Do you know how revolutionary that was to a culture like that back then? Where women by the Romans... And even by the Jews and the Greeks were considered things that you own. You know, you got your camels, you got your tent, you got your wife, you got just the whole list of belongings. For Paul to say there's no male nor female, you're one in Christ, blew their minds. And I'm really grateful that Luke here mentions women coming to know the Lord. And notice something else in that verse. It says believers were increasingly added to the Lord. You know, that impresses me. They were added to the Lord. You know, that's the basic central idea of salvation. Salvation is a person, not a system. It didn't say that the Lord added to them. The Lord, it, the people were added to the Lord. I mentioned a little bit about church growth. You know, for one thing, it's important that a shepherd of a church be protective of the sheep that God has placed under his care to nurture them, to feed them, to protect them from heresy and so forth. But, you know, some of us pastors are so concerned that someone might defect and go to another fishbowl. <laughs> and as someone has put it, we have become, rather than fishers of men, keepers of the aquarium. The central issue isn't what church roster do you belong to. The central issue is have you been added to the Lord? Do you have a relationship with Him? That is why the church itself can become a detriment and a peril to people's souls. 
Because often the church substitutes membership for relationship. You have to be a member of our church, be baptized this way, and so a person will do it, and they will have a religious experience, but not a redemptive experience. And they think, listen, I belong to a church, I'm religious, I go every week, I pay my dues, I pay the association fees, I go to the picnics, I'm fine. They've had a religious experience even, but not a redemptive experience. Jesus said, you must be born again. They were added to the Lord. Now, because so many of them were saved, they had needs. And we notice that in the next verse. It says, so that all these people were coming to know the Lord, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. There were so many people that there were so many needs. The more people you get, the messier it gets. Because the more needs you have. The more human beings, the more needs. Jesus said, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, heal the oppressed, open the prison to those that are captive. Now, if you take all of those people and put them together, oppressed, captive, blind, Brokenhearted, that's a messy group of people. And all of them have needs. And the more people, the more needs, the more need there is for God to show Himself strong on their behalf. Question, what is this deal about the shadow of Peter passing by that people were being healed? Well, the shadow is a term, a Near Eastern term of influence. When you come under the shadow of somebody, you come under the influence of them. And even people held that to be superstitious. If the shadow passes by you, you're under his wing, you're under his influence, and it's kind of, kind of neat. This is what I personally believe. This is my theory. This coupled with when they took the handkerchiefs from Paul, the sweatbands, literally. They weren't prayer cloths in those days. They were sweatbands from work. People had them touch their body and they were healed. Why? Was there something miraculous in the sweatband? Do you then go on selling miraculous sweatbands throughout church history because of that scripture? Do you send out form letters saying, if you touch my sweatband, you'll be healed for $50? I don't think that's what he had in mind. Or with the shadow. I think that these things provided a point of contact to release faith. A trigger, if you will. There was a woman who had an issue of blood in the New Testament. She'd been treated by doctors for 12 years, and she didn't get any better. She saw Jesus was coming through town, and she said, If I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She set the hem of Jesus' garment as a point of contact to release her faith. There wasn't anything miraculous about the garment of Jesus. It was a piece of cloth. It wasn't any more miraculous than the blue jeans that you wear. But she said, if I touch just the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She touched it, she was healed. Because she set that in her mind, set that in her heart. As soon as she touched it, she released her faith, and I believe triggered that the healing. And Jesus even turned to her and said, your faith has made you well. And so I believe we see the same thing here with the shadow of Peter and later on the cloth or the sweatbands. It's also interesting, it says all of them were healed here. There was no failure reports, you see. And the apostles didn't turn some of them away because they lacked faith. Probably a lot of them had faith and some of them didn't, but they were healed. All of them were healed. So the story has begun with destruction, Ananias and Sapphira, but it ends with healing, all by the same power. You see, the church pure is the church powerful. And the church obedient is the church pure. And we see that occurring here. Now look in verse 17. We see the reaction. We've had the action. Now here's the opposite reaction. It comes in the form of opposition from the religious leaders. And then the high priest rose up. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles. They didn't pray for them. This isn't the good kind of laying on of hands. They didn't say, no, Lord, we... No. This is the bad kind. 
They grabbed them by the scruff of the neck, no doubt. And they put them in the common prison. There were at least three reasons why these leaders arrested them. Number one, because the apostles disobeyed orders. Remember the orders? It was illegal to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. The apostles didn't care. They did it anyway. And so these guys were filled with indignation because a law had been broken. There was another reason. Notice they were Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, angels, or the supernatural. Well, the action of the apostles flatly contradicted their own doctrine. As long as these disciples were running around Jerusalem, it made them look like theological nincompoops. They didn't believe in resurrection or miracles, yet they were happening everywhere. They got angry about that. But third, they were jealous. The word indignation in that verse literally means they were filled with jealousy. You see, the rope of control was slipping out of their hands. People were not looking with reverence to the Sadducees anymore, but to the apostles. And turning to Jesus, there was a massive revival. The attention was off of them. They were jealous. And so in the name of defending the faith, they had these people put in prison. It says, but at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You know, I find it ironic throughout the entire New Testament that although Christians were imprisoned, Paul was in Rome, these people were imprisoned in Jerusalem. We've read about the catacombs underneath, the network of catacombs underneath Rome. Christians were tortured. They were put in prison. It's interesting, although Christians were put in prison, they were always free. And they always looked at other people as prisoners. Jesus stood before Pilate, yet Pilate was the prisoner. Paul, in chains, stood before King Agrippa, yet he preached the gospel because he knew Agrippa was chained by his own sin. Paul, writing from a Roman prison in chains, said, Don't you know that I'm put here? By the will of God for the furtherance of the gospel? See, the gospel isn't hindered. They were in prison, but they were free, and the word of God was free. You know, speaking of the catacombs, they have found in the catacombs underneath Rome inscriptions on the tombs of thousands of Christians. And there were one of two inscriptions, and the one inscription they found the most was, the word of God is not bound. They're not captive to sin. And the Word of God is furthered even by the uh, blood of the saints. Well, it talks about an angel here springing these guys from prison. I don't know how much you think about the ministry of angels possibly in your life, but they're there if you're a believer. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent by God to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Are you an heir of salvation? Well, then God has sent angels to minister to you. Now, we don't see them, but their influence is there. I recommend an excellent book by Billy Graham called Angels. It traces the whole history through the Old and New Testament, and it's quite revealing, even some personal stories he's, he's had. Now, some of you who are a little bit living on the wild side, perhaps you have angels doubling up on you. Instead of one or two angels, you might have a whole network of them. I'm certain by certain things that I do that, you know, God says, okay, get a whole bunch of angels on this guy. This guy's a character. But they're sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. It's an important point as we close this out. The angel released the apostles from jail. I wonder if that was, if we were in that position, if we were sprung from prison after persecution, if we would say, hot dog, and then flee to safety. Notice that they were released from captivity, but not released from the commission. For the angel, when he springs them, didn't say, now go home, have a hot dog, watch a show, and go to sleep. He says this, go stand in the temple. Now, it's illegal to do this. The angel said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
I believe that is tonight the message of God to us. Whatever action our or reaction our righteousness produces, whatever anger, whatever hostility, whatever indifference, our action of being righteous and right standing before God produces, we are never released from the commission to go stand and tell people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. The whole gospel. Look at verse 28. Let's skip ahead. The Sanhedrin says, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, I love this. You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Isn't that a wonderful thing? What a what a reward. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the enemies of the cross in this town could say about us, You have filled Albuquerque with your doctrine. All right. That's what we want to do. We want to fill it up big time. We want to pour it out. We have a commission, sometimes called the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. And whoever believes will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be damned. And because of that fact, we need to warn every man to speak all the words of this life. The word preach means to herald or to proclaim. The gospel means good news. And I believe it's twofold, at least. It's by what we say, and it's by how we live. And you can't have one without the other. You can't preach the gospel verbally and live a shabby Christian life. And you can't just live a witness without telling people why you do. They're intertwined. They're inseparable. Speaking and living, actually, all the words of this life. Nothing, nothing can be substituted for personal witness. And you know what? You don't have to even be fancy at sharing the gospel with people. You don't, know, have, to, you don't have to know all the big words, theological terms about sanctification and justification and glorification. Because, you know, the disciples, they preached what they saw and what they heard. What they saw happen that Jesus did, that was happening in their midst, and what they heard, the Word of God. That's all you have to do. How has God changed your life? Tell people that. Well, I, I don't know about creation versus evolution, so you know what Jesus did for you. Tell people that. And it can revolutionize their life. As we said at the beginning, they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Do people know that you're a believer? Or are you the, as we've said before, the Lady Clairol Christian? Only God knows for sure. <laughs> Do people know, you know, that, that person is a believer? The person shares with me. The person demonstrates the love of Christ to me. Do people that you work and you live around know he's a Christian, he's a believer? It's good news. Jesus said what you've heard in secret, shout it from the housetops. Proclaim, herald, preach the good news. You know, I had an excuse for a long time. I said, you know, I don't want to disturb people. Now, I, I don't want to advocate tactlessness. You do need to be tactful and you do need to watch for open doors. But I used to say, Lord, you know, I just if they're not into it, or I don't want to bring it up, because, you know, if they ask me, what must I do to be saved? Okay, that's an open door, but... I mean, I don't want to bring it up or anything. They have their own choices. And God kind of showed me, well, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Spurgeon had a great answer for that, and people said, I don't want to disturb anybody. He said, if your neighbor's house was burning... It was on fire and your neighbors were in there. Would you say, oh, I don't want to disturb them. They're having such a nice sleep. They won't know anything happened to them. They'll just fall asleep. And No, you'd warn them. You'd warn them. There's an ancient story that I found that recalls how Satan once summoned his top three aides to plan how to stop a group of dedicated Christians from effective missionary work and witness. One of the lieutenants, Rancor, said to Satan, We should convince them there is no God. And Satan sneered at Rancor and replied, That would never work. 
They know that there's a God. Another of Satan's aides, bitterness, spoke up. We'll convince them that God doesn't really care about right or wrong. Satan toyed with the notion for a few moments, but rejected it because he knew that too many Christians know that God does care. Malice was the third satanic helper and came up with his idea. We'll let them go on thinking there's a God and that he cares about right and wrong, but we will keep whispering, there is no hurry, there is no hurry, there is no hurry. Satan howled with glee. He advanced malice higher in his malevolent organization, for Satan knew that he would find this stratagem successful with many, many Christians. The scripture says, now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. When I was sharing with this young man back in North Carolina, he was saying, boy, I've never seen it before like that. I really see that I need Jesus. And I said, listen, would you like to turn your life over to Jesus right now? And he backed away. No. I said, why? I don't know if I'm ready to make that that kind of a decision. I said, now let me just, I don't want to belittle you. I'll just share with what you just said. You shared, you've never seen it before that way, that you need to accept Jesus Christ. You recognize that you need to commit your life to Him, but you won't do it. And he could sense, I explained to him the spiritual battle that he was experiencing at that point. That the, the enemy, Satan, did not want me to tamper with him. It was as if Satan had his talons in him saying, this one's mine. You let him go. He was just wincing under it. Finally he prayed. And there you could sense the release and the relief. Just making that first step, God strengthened that step. And my friend Franklin, when he came to his room, said, I could see the transformation in this guy from the time he picked up the bags at the car to the time he came in the room. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know what was going on. But he knew that he made the right step. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. Why be a captive? Why keep going with it? And I would offer the challenge to some of you tonight. Now, most of you in this room have turned your life over to Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps have thought that you have. And you've had a religious experience, but not a redemptive one. Maybe you've been brought by a friend by a relative, or you've come out of curiosity, you've heard about the place. And, and tonight, maybe God is speaking to your heart saying, I love you. Would you just turn over your life to me and watch what I can do through you and in you? I encourage you, don't put it off another day. Make the first step tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we bow our heads and our hearts in reverence. We know that everything we say and think and do is under the eye of Almighty God. You see it all. You know the condition of our hearts. We cannot fool you. Whatever we pretend to be, you know what we really are. We know, Lord, that every action, even spiritually, produces an equal and opposite reaction. But I pray, Father, that tonight the kingdom of darkness would lose in the lives of many who would turn their hearts over to you and say, Jesus, be my Lord. I surrender to you tonight. 